The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello, this is Gwendolyn And welcome to our show this week, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, how to embed the intelligence of our operational system, our intelligence, into the physical landscape of work, how through visual devices, through visual systems, through visual solutions, through this language that we call visuality, this language of meaning, of performance, of precision, of reliability, repeatability, even in low-volume, high-complexity production systems, in banks, in hospitals, retail stores, dry cleaners, open-pit mines, automobile factories, overhaul and repair, military depots, government agencies. It's all the same. It's all about information sharing. It's about noticing those information deficits and removing them through solutions that are visual. Okay? So that's what the show is about. And when we do this, we get to reap enormous business benefits and we get to enjoy ourselves along the way. We get to enjoy ourselves at work. This week, we're going to have a conversation, if you are willing, about fractals and monkeys and morphogenic fields. And we'll need pretty much every moment to cover it uh, because it kind of has to be set up and then kind of arc into a plumpness and then it's got to have a, a kind of um, what do we do with this information. I just have a couple of announcements before we start. I want to announce that we're having our visual uh, workplace visual thinking seminar and visual assessment plant tour on June 12th and 13th in San Antonio, Texas, sponsored by AME. It should be very good, and you can uh, find out more about it either on our website, visualworkplace.com, or on the AME website, ame.org. Also want to remind you that our books are also presented on our websites, on my website, I should say, and also access to our small screen webinars, Our big screen webinars, which are used for training large groups, can be arranged for just by contacting us, and then we'll get back in touch with you. So there we have it. I want to thank uh, everybody for tuning in, and let's now start with fractals, monkeys, and morphogenic fields. The purpose of today's show is that I want to share with you some concepts that I have been encountering and also fashioning for several years about the nature of change, the nature of leadership, and what happens when we implement improvement, what happens below the surface, if you will, and 
implement improvement effectively. What happens if I may use the word on a dimensional scale from the perspective of form and flow? I mean, we know a great deal about the technical causes and the undeniable logic of implementing. We know the physical process and we know the kind of intellectual content. But actually, my position is, or my premise is, there's also a different set of causes that pertain and an almost undetectable logic that can still produce tangible, knowable changes and outcomes. Basically, suddenly, suddenly we realize reality ain't what it used to be, ain't what we thought it was or what it's supposed to be. It's something much greater. It's something much more important in terms of the whole life cycle of the company and also our life on the planet. I've been struck again and again that the biggest gap in our understanding really exists in the words of what we don't know, we don't know. So I'm kind of entering that. And if you've got questions, please call in. The number for call-ins are, is 866-472-5790. So one of the reasons why I delve into this area of um, kind of uh, intellectual curiosity is because it's important for me to create distance from the work I'm doing. And it's particularly helpful when I get caught up too close or even entangled that I reestablish my perspective. This has to do a lot with success and failure and keeping going. So I want to share with you uh, what uh, I've been thinking about in that regard. And so many people who are listening today are also deeply involved in improvement in their companies. The numbers, uh, the, the new numbers are due to come out in a few days. But as of March, 52,000 of you are listening every month, either directly or via podcast. And that means there's a lot of improvement leadership and a lot of improvement struggle out there. Here's my main message. I want you to know that what you're doing is important. It's hard, but it's also important, very important. And it is much, much more, in my view, than what we sometimes think it is. In fact, this whole movement in the, uh, uh, in the, in the planet, in the workplace for improvement is huge and compelling, even if you feel that you are stuck or failing. The thing is, you're wrong. You're not stuck. You're not failing. Progress, as we know it, is simply put on pause just for the moment. So I've reached into the sciences to find an orientational language that is precise enough to describe what I think I've observed, and I want to share that with you, but also dimensional enough for me to experiment and probe and redefine and feel a kind of flexible framework. Mostly I want to get a fit between successful implementation and the fledgling starts that so many companies travel through, struggling at the beginning And that struggle at the beginning can often derail us, talk us out of our vision, our belief, our conviction that the right choice was made and we're going to stick to it. We waver. But we have to keep an eye on the horizon. You've heard me use that term before. We have to name the horizon and aim for the horizon. We name it and then we figure out how to attain it. Implementing change, improvement, as I like to think of it, is enormously complex. It is not easy. And at the start, it is very fragile. Even in the middle, it's it's fragile. So we have to be fragile but bold. 
It's a challenging combination. We have to move ahead with confidence, <laughs> even though we know we're going to be whammed. So today I want to uh, draw in two lines of science, chaos theory, strange attractors, and, pract- and fractals, and the still point and morphogenic fields and those mon- um, monkeys I mentioned in the announcement for this week's show. I'm going to try to put them into uh, a little story. Some of the elements that we'll be talking about will be, well, a little strange or peculiar or just plain weird. (laughs) Still, I think there is something in this discussion that you might indeed find helpful. That's the way it's been for me. It's been even revelatory, illuminating, helpful to say the least. So just try not to get caught up in thinking, boy, is this weird? Should I be listening to this? And maybe instead, just lean back and treat this show as a story, a series of stories, my little stories. Because there is a story here. Stories have plot and character and adventure and things are revealed at the end that you don't suspect at the beginning. That's what makes them stories. We love stories. So we're going to tell some stories today. And then we'll resume our march through tools and methods and other shows. I promise, plenty of stuff, plenty of practicality. So let's talk first about chaos. Most of us are familiar with the notion of chaos, either because we experience it every day at home or at work. In that context, chaos is very close to mayhem, turmoil. It's not just complexity. It's too much of everything. It's randomness. It's messy. It's more than commotion, it's turmoil. It feels it looks like uncertainty, but is it? That's the question. Is it uncertainty? So in uh, the Greeks had this word chaos, they spelled it with a K instead of a C, chaos. And it was the first of the primeval gods to emerge at the creation of the universe. That's what the Greeks believed. Her domain, and it was a her, you're not surprised, I'm sure. Her domain, Chaos's domain, was the lower atmosphere which surrounded the earth, the invisible air, the gloomy mist, the gap, the space, the yawn between heaven and earth. That's actually what chaos means. It's gradually evolved into this idea of gas. That's where we get the word gas from, from chaos, which means that it's a lack of organization. It's kind of disorder. And later authors defined chaos as the turbulent, frenzied mix of elements, uncontainable and again gaseous. Okay? But the Greeks believed that all things arose out of this swirling mess. Men and women and trees and rocks and horses and boxes and everything. And then in the early 20th century, along came a group of scientists that decided to study chaos, to investigate it as though it were investigatable. That was already a jump. I mean, you really are investigating nothing but turmoil. And what they discovered was a surprise to them and, of course, to us. Chaos is actually a science. It is a knowable array, a useful array of relevant principles that can be defined and can be applied. And the opposite, the opposite of chaos, I want you to think about this. What is the opposite of chaos and turmoil, the uncontainable randomness? Because I'm going to build on your answer. But So maybe you think the opposite of chaos is calm and peace and order. 
But that suggests a neutralizing antidote and not an opposite, not an opposite that is as powerful as its opposite. And that's the thing about opposites. They have to be equally powerful. They can't just be a neutralization or a dilution or an erasing, erasing, erasure of a, a phenomenon or a condition. They have to be a sub, they have to supplant it. So the idea of opposites, defining the right opposites, is very connected to our discussion today. I want to tell you a story. This is a story that happened on my birthday many, many years ago in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was alone that day, no one to celebrate with. I was really not very happy. So I walked to a few blocks to a place called Harvard Square in an attempt to be cheerful. And along the way, a woman asked me for directions, and I provided them. And because she and I were walking in the same direction, we began to talk. But what a talk it was. In no time at all, this woman, whose name as I soon found out, was Anne, was an ex-nun. She had spent 30 years in the nunnery, and then one day she decided to leave. (laughs) And when she left the nunnery, she began to catch up with the outside world. She was in New York at the time, as she was telling me. I mean, we took a long walk because she was so interesting, because it was my birthday. Yeah. And she told me that one evening she went to a lecture by a very famous psychoanalyst, a guy named Eric Erickson, very famous. And afterwards, she went up and thanked him. She found the subject matter riveting, and he, in his turn, invited her to attend a series of lectures and explorations he had scheduled to help him sort through the matters of a new book he was writing. She went gladly and sat at the very top of the amphitheater in view of all but nearly invisible to all as well. She could see everyone. They could hardly see her. And she listened. And... Erickson posed a question. He said, okay, I need you to tell me, what is the opposite of anxiety? What is the opposite of anxiety? Tell me what you think. He's talking to the audience. And one person said, the opposite of anxiety is calm. The opposite of anxiety is peace, said another. The opposite of anxiety is harmony, said another, and on and on. And Erickson said, no, 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 you have to go further. And then out of the blue, he turned to Anne up high in the rafters and said, what do you think the opposite of anxiety is, Anne? Well, she was speechless. She didn't even know that he knew that she was there. He used her name. And then she said, the opposite of anxiety is courage. So we'll pick this up when we come back from our break. I'll see you in a minute. Thanks. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. 
Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Gwendolyn, and here we are at the Visual Workplace this week talking about fractals and monkeys and morphogenic fields. As part of that, we're discussing the notion of chaos. And I was just telling you the story about my meeting Anne on my birthday, an ex-nun, and that we, that she was, she told me about a moment in her life just because we were talking. I don't know how it got triggered. And she was in front of a very famous man who asked her, uh, as he was asking the entire audience, what is the opposite of anxiety? And she, thought for a moment, and she said, the opposite of anxiety is courage. And he said something like, bingo, you are correct. <laughs> the opposite of anxiety is courage. And Anne and I went on talking. I don't remember what happened after that, but I remembered thinking to myself, wow, what a birthday present I just got. This is amazing. I didn't even know what it meant. This was many years ago. I think this was in the 1980s. It was probably 89 or so. But I never forgot it because it really shook my world. It really made me think differently about this whole idea of opposites and about what I saw and what I knew and what I thought and how wrong I was. (laughs) It was just like cold water in my face, but it was very welcomed. I loved it. It was such a, I, I have a name for it now, it's called a pattern interrupt. It was interrupting my normal thinking and throwing something in there like a wrench that uh, set me, set me back and forward and upside down. So I want to, so then we're going to address this question of what is the opposite of chaos? What is the opposite of randomness and turmoil in the swirling mess? Amazingly, it is not order or orderliness, or organization. It is the state that precedes those things. It is the state called stillness. Stillness, not as a way to neutralize the power of chaos, but as a power in and of itself, stillness. The power to utilize chaos, to harvest it, and therefore to transform. We look to our anxiety and see that action, stepping out of it, hopefully stepping forward 
is the antidote, the courage to, to act. But we don't know, but we don't know, we don't know yet if it will work. We have to engage our muscles and make the step. We have to draw up our courage and move forward to find out. We find our courage and then we act courageously. We lead courageous lives. And this is the way life is. It certainly is the way it is when we're implementing improvement. We think we have a formula and kaboom. We have no formula at all. We have a starting point. And then we keep an eye on the horizon, on the outcomes, keep an eye on our intention. I'm going to be using that word quite a bit. On our intention about that horizon, we keep going. So about the still point. What has this got to do with companies and improvement of market share? Well, bear with me. I'm kind of suggesting it. Let me draw out the chaos hypothesis a bit more. So we have the state of other confusion, the gaseous mess. In a sense, it is unchanging and unlimited. It's just a mess, continuous mess, except for one thing. One event that occur or can occur. One event that occurs or can occur. Let me get my language right. For reasons that are nearly impossible to discern nearly invisible, and that is some pinpoint of activity in this gaseous mess stops. It holds still. It becomes still. It is the still point. It is more than just a line in the sand or a stake in the ground. The still point is the location around which the chaos organizes itself because it can organize itself if something, some point holds still. It cannot organize itself if all of chaos just continues swirling. I, I sometimes think of it as providential, as just a gift. But I also know that methodology can do that. And I'm going to, I'm going to create that point in a moment. So what does chaos organize itself into? Well, now we have it. Order, orderliness, structure, repeatability, precision. Do these sound familiar? But not just those conditions. The overriding condition is a pattern. The pattern begins functionality. We get purpose. Okay, the pattern is purpose. It's synonymous with purpose. The order is part of the chaos, but it is unnoticed, undefined. Uh, it is there in potential only. It is kind of muffled. By the chaos, we keep going. The still point, in my book, is also called the strange attractor. This is language I adore. One of my best boyfriends ever was a mathematical genius who worked on this thing called the strange attractor. And I always thought, this is a name that really resonates. I'm going to look for ways to read it, to use it when I talk to people about their organization, about change, the strange attractor. <laughs> the conditions of chaos have been configured and simulated in laboratories of the great research institutes of our time, MIT, UCLA, Harvard. That is to say, labs have constructed mathematical models, mathematical equations that allow them to observe chaos that phenomenon behave in a box. We call that box our computer. When they did this back in the 1980s in Boston, where I lived, where I met Anne and many, many other things happened, and I lived just down the street, they were astonishing the world by discovering something called a fractal. 
The fractal actually was discovered by a guy named Mandelbrot in 1975, and it has important roots, a kind of continuous history from way back into the 17th century. But Mandelbrot popularized it, and because we had electronics and the computer, he was able to use the computer to demonstrate and explore the field. Okay, the field of chaos. The closest representation to fractals in nature are clouds, coastlines, snowflakes. But when the computers began to model fractals, and I'm going to define fractals in just a second much more closely, bear with me. There are just too many things going on at once right now. When they began to model chaos, the secrets of fractals were revealed and demonstrated for my pleasure, your pleasure, and the pleasure of the scientists. They are amazing, simple, elegant, relevant. Once noticed uh, by the scientific world, a guy named James Gleck, G-L-E-I-C-K, G-L-E-I-C-K, wrote a fantastic book. This is in the 80s. The Science of Chaos. Wonderful book. It was just recently released. I would read it if I were you. His gift is that he makes this very, very readable. That's how, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I, he, he explained this well enough and I was reading it about this time that it was happening. And I thought, bingo, bingo, bingo. I don't know how to use it, but this is really cool stuff. And I know it relates. Maybe sometime. Some way I'll see how. So that's what I'm talking about now. I can see the relationship and I want to share it with you. That still point, that strange attractor introduced a never before suspected, never before suspected element of the material world, precision, the inevitability of order, but not just order, beauty. Beauty, and I'm talking about fractals here, beauty on an impossibly vast scale simultaneous to beauty on an impossibly minute scale, on an impossibly minute scale, infinite beauty, ravishing, captivating. May I say us? And these are called fractals. Yes, I am still talking about companies as a setting for this whole discussion, but I also recommend that you go online Go on Google, look up fractals, and look for the videos that show you show you them merging and, and emerging out of chaos. The thing about fractals, they're named because these formulations appeared to be in pieces, but actually that's not so. But when they were first seen, they were seen as pieces. Fractals, fractals are always and ever whole. Fractals are spelled F-R-A-C-T-A-L, fractals. They are each their own matter, their own pattern, and that pattern repeats itself in ways that become infinitely large and, as I said before, infinitely small. You can zoom in, and there is the pattern repeating itself, and you can zoom out and see the collection of tidying patterns into a greater pattern. They express themselves collectively as pattern. Scientists call them self-similar patterns, and that means the same from near as they are from far, identical but on different scales. So when I speak of patterns, I don't mean the Royal Scott plaid. I mean infinite variety within infinite form. Imagine, for example, a gorgeous paisley pattern. That kind of looks what it, like a, um, 
what a fractal looks like. Repeated as far in as you can go and as far out, but with unexpected sensational configurations that you did not only not notice, but never expected. Beauty, beauty. And it behaves and it displays its secrets. It's not magic, but my goodness, it is so cool. It's physical. On a geometric, non-tangible base, the origin of form. So I'm going to pick this up. I hope you're sticking with me. I actually am getting somewhere. And I am going to tell you a great story about the monkeys very, very soon, if you're willing to stick with me. You know, you just kind of lean back. And I hope you come back. I'll be here. See you in a minute. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. G? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters with Dr. G airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. (laughs) Hi, it's Gwendolyn. So I'm thinking I better get on to uh, making the connection or you're going to turn the dial. I find this stuff fascinating. And, and to tell you the truth, this I'm kind of working on this language to present it as part of the book that I'm writing now on visual leadership. Because I want leaders to know about the dynamics that are going on underneath and beyond what they're doing. I want them to understand the context. This, this is big stuff. We're in a big world right now. So uh, I'm just going to mention to you there's something called the Mandelbrot set, which is a particular sequence of fractals, a certain a certain configuration. There's the Julia set. Go online and see this stuff, and you will you'll say to yourself, "How can this be math? It's so beautiful, and it's alive. It's animate. It's organic." Hmm. Okay. So here's the connection. You may experience your company right now 
as chaotic, tumultuous, unpredictable, and even dangerous, fine. But what are you going to do about it? Put it on a ship, make your way to the middle of the ocean, and sink the whole mess? Well, you may be tempted to, to throw the body, the baby out with the bathwater, but there's another way. And the science, these physics that I'm talking about, the physics of chaos, the science of still points and fractals, can point the way to us. Let's make the connection. In order to bring order, intentional flow, precision, predictability, a system out of chaos, you must initiate a still point, a point that attracts, a a point around which the gaseous mess can organize, can order itself and express itself. That still point, to begin with, the, the thing that attracts is the decision. You can call it intention. It's fine. I prefer decision because it's your intention loud and clear and stated and declared. A decision that is unwavering and resolute to change. The point, that point becomes anchored when you choose a conversion methodology that is sufficiently robust and aligned to anchor and spread the change. And then you implement. You undertake the change and you stand for that and you stand behind it this is a conversation that of course one must have with top leadership Hmm? because there's so much wafting through the popular discussion about leadership about being nice and politically correct about leading to quote directly as though you have no authority and i appreciate those concepts but because only half of the equation of leadership is being discussed with those words. People think that nice is the way to win. Nice is the way to save your company. But we need to really reset, rebalance the power structure in our companies. We need to share power, but we must first also be powerful. We need to decide the opposite of chaos is not peace. It is the still point. It is that decision. It is the courage to make that decision and stand behind it. I want to encourage you in that, whether you're leaders or you're waiting to be led. And that is the point, the whole point. When you decide, you are positioned to move forward, even if to some it looks like you're moving backwards. That's just the way decisions work. Decide the decision is the strange attractor. It is the anchor point. What is that exact moment you decide? The first decision is to choose the horizon. The second is more like a series of linked decisions, but always anchored in the first, in the horizon. You move step by step towards that, and when you do, when you take concrete steps, you exert a power that goes beyond the power to lead. You exert the power to manifest, Hmm? to make it happen. This is power. This is not just a walk in the woods. This is power. And that is what is so powerful about these improvement modalities that so many companies have adopted across the past three decades. These modalities represent a decision on the leadership level to change the organization, to transform. Again, we look to Toyota, to a decision of value set and a decision, a horizon that has, that has continued almost uninterrupted for the last 50 years. While the first step deciding is the telling one, without which there is no second step, 
Directly on, it, on its heels comes the ongoing, unrelenting challenge of actually creating the change, improving, converting, transforming, implementing, learning, and deploying the new way. Once again, we have powerful friends in the sciences. This time, we're going to visit a branch of science called noetics, the science of consciousness, N-O-E-T-I-C-S, noetics. And our knight in shining armor is the biologist from Cambridge University in the UK, ta-da-ta-da, Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert Sheldrake. I got a chance to meet him once. I was just beflummoxed. Oh, my God, it's Rupert Sheldrake. So let me tell you about him. Rupert Sheldrake has done massive research into non-tangible connections between form and the thing we call feels, the envelope, the invisible envelope around things, feels. When I read his book around his 1994 book, Seven Experiments That Could Change the World, I felt completely changed. I was already 15, 16 years into organizational change and improvement, and suddenly I understood so much more. And in that book, by the way, among the many other astonishing chapters, is one called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. This is the the research on which Sheldrake is creating this contribution of his. He's turned this into a, a book of its own. It's very interesting. One of the charming things about Sheldrake is that he enlists the help of lay people, us, people with dogs, to contribute to his scientific research so he doesn't have to get grants, which he's not going to be able to get anyway because his work is very edgy. It's not mechanistic. It's, you know, making tangible the unseen. Look, love is unseen, but we build whole cultures around it. Fear is unseen, but it drives us. So please don't talk to me about unseen being woo-woo. <laughs> Imaginary. No, these are powerful forces. So Sheldrake is a star. He's a supernova. Much of his work has ties to early investigators, including Aristotle. So we realize that these concepts are not newly entered into our thinking, but have been around for a long, long time. But the pause button was clicked in the 19th century when Western society, when we in Europe and here in the U.S., including the scientific community, began to marvel at the mechanistic world, at the mechanics of things. And that's the way they wanted to explain things. So they dropped all the other stuff the not yet visible, but the equally robust world of the field went underground for a century. Two steps forward, one step back. That's our description of progress. We already know that. So now this discussion is reappearing again. And at the core of his work, and Sheldrake's work and his person are not without vocal and highly placed detractors, is the proposition that organic activity is organized into powerful patterns or nets of learning and knowing, powerful fields that are species-specific. The word that's used is special. It's like special, but with an E-L at the end, not an A-L. Special, it's a really cool word. I love to say it and look smart. The gist of that is that when we learn, when we learn, we are already in a social construct an intelligence construct, a construct of, an, uh, of intention, if you will, that defines us. We already inhabit that. It is part of us. It defines us and is defined by the activity that takes place within it, what we do. This is what we call society, but it's a construct. It's an agreement. 
If we work in a company, for example, that company has a specific envelope, a field that holds its consciousness, its behavioral essence, its thinking, its learnings, its performance, and the behaviors of the people who are in there. So we've got behaviors, we've got consciousness, but then we have people acting it, acting it out. When we introduce change into that envelope, we introduce change into the company that is contained within it. And that's what happens when we engage in a new improvement process. So we're really, I mean, this is gargantuan work. We're changing this huge pattern called the field. When people learn new things and they learn it in a new, in a new way, this has a knowable, defined, definite, and often sizable impact. These are in themselves causative factors, causes of the new outcome. This is, in fact, what we mean when we talk about the ever-elusive, highly sought-after holy grail of cultural change. It is the field we have to change. It is the field that changes because our behavior changes and our behavior changes because the field changes. Okay? So here I'm linking the change that follows the decision, that moment of stillness I call still point the strange attractor, with what follows the change itself. And that change registers itself in the net, this special net that is the company, the envelope around the company. They're one and the same thing. As we will see in a moment, because I'm going to tell you another great story, this one about monkeys, that awareness or that conclusion is based on a discovery that was made many years before Sheldrake got involved in this work, that each type of living organism resides in its own field of logic, a logic that has linkages to other such organisms or members of the species. Each has its own morphogenic field. And by the way, morphogenic only means form, and genic coming out of. So it's generating form, how form is generated. And these fields reside within one that is greater and greater. So so, so these are, are kind of like rippling effects, bubbles inside of bubbles inside of bubbles. But this is our reality. So you, you need to be aware of this so you know first why things are hard, but also that you have tremendous support. That's one of the reasons why benchmarking other companies is so powerful and so useful. We see we are able to identify with the components of a different horizon. We we project ourselves. We see ourselves as lined up with that. Sheldrake did not discover morphogenic fields, but his contribution to that research is astonishing. The guy that I will point to next, a guy named another scientist, Lyle Watson, wrote of this phenomenon, but he didn't use the term morphogenic fields. And I wrote about what he wrote about in the final chapter of my 1997 book, Visual Systems. I made that connection. So when we come back from this break, I'm going to tell you the story of the monkeys, and I hope you get the connection. And all I want you to do is think about these things. This is not exactly a tool. This is something that you chew on and maybe enjoy, maybe gives you satisfaction that there really is something going on here that's bigger than your last confrontation with your boss. Okay, you're doing great work. Please continue. I'll be back in a moment. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, it's Gwendolyn. We're in the last part of our show on fractals, monkeys, and morphogenic fields. And I'm hoping you're kind of getting the shape of things now. I'm going to kind of hopefully tie the various pieces of today's show together when I tell you this story that Watson, in his book that was published in 1979 called Lifetime, introduced to us. He introduced monkeys to us, and he introduced the hundredth monkey. You remember the hundredth monkey when the critical mass is met and something spectacular, there's a spectacular change in consciousness and therefore behavior on the planet. So here we go. On the remote island of Cosimo in the Pacific, a troop of macaque monkeys lived in the wild. And they were the subject of intense research for decades. And in 1952, something happened to the monkeys on Cosimo that has very much to do with what we're talking about. In 1952, a group of scientists were researching macaque feeding behaviors. And as part of their experiment, they set stacks of raw sweet potatoes in selected spots on the beaches of the island. Quite naturally, the potatoes were quickly covered with sand, presenting the monkeys with a dilemma. Every time they took a bite of these delicious new treats, they also got a mouthful of sand and grit. This went on, this went on, this went on. And then one day, there it is, and then one day, an 18-month-old female monkey, who was named by the scientists who got to know all the monkeys, Emo, carried a sand-covered sweet potato to a stream and solved the problem by washing it off before putting it into her mouth. 
She then taught this new procedure to her mother. This is a role reversal. In these um, monkey communities, mother teaches child, not child teaches mother. And she also taught it to her playmates. And the behavior began to spread. And slowly over the next six years, in full view of this team of scientists who set up the experiment, and without their interference, monkeys on Cosimo learned the procedures and taught it to others in the troop, washed the sand off of these potatoes before eating them. Well, when reports of this occurrence reached the outside world, it created a stir in scientific circles. Here was Emo, a wild monkey, changing her relationship with physical reality through a new behavior that she had discovered on her own, a new need, a new thought, a new behavior she was learning. And then she shared it with others of her kind. She was teaching, and they in turn learned it and shared it with others. As Lyle Watson wrote in Lifetime, he said, in monkey terms, this was a cultural revolution comparable to almost the invention of wheel for us. But things were just heating up because something really extraordinary was about to happen, something that no one had ever observed before, and that's an important point to remember. The exact details of what happened remained sketchy because the scientific constructs of the time were not designed to describe them. So no one knew this was going to happen, so they were unprepared, but this is what was observed. In the fall of 1958, many of the monkeys on Cosimo had already adopted the new washing behavior. An exact number is not specified, so we'll take our cue from what Watson configured. He set the number at 99. He said, let's say 99 monkeys. 99 monkeys were now washing the sand off of food before eating it. And then one more monkey began to do that. The hundredth monkey. The hundredth monkey began to do that, and the inexplicable happened. The behavior jumped. Suddenly and mysteriously, macaque monkeys on a nearby island began to wash sand off of their food before eating it. The behavior jumped, and it kept jumping to the island surrounding Cosimo, where there were macaque monkeys, species, the species and to mainland Japan, hundreds of miles away. These macaque monkeys began to do the same thing, to wash sand off their food before eating it. But remember, we're talking monkeys here. It's not as if Emo picked up the phone and called her relatives and other members of her species to share the news. Oh, wash that sand off. The thought form called wash the sand off jumped from one physically removed group to another. This was observed. This was documented. A critical mass was reached. And when the hundredth monkey learned the behavior, the understanding jumped on its own. It transferred. It went into the knowledge grid of the species, the morphogenic field, the envelope around the species. And that meant any member of that species could access that new behavior because that behavior was now part of the realized bodies of understanding the realized body of understandings that they shared, part of macaque consciousness. It's been nearly 70 years since that event was recorded, and a great deal of research has been done on trying to explain how and why and what does this mean, the hundredth monkey principle. How and why does behavior, does learning 
jump. Uber Cheldrake, for example, became intoxicated by this, and his work is coughing up many new discoveries, many new applications. Read that book. Explaining how discoveries of this time, of this kind seem to happen nearly simultaneously in distant and unconnected parts of the world. Ask Nobel Prize winners and they're also rands. Scientists and inventors are often accused of stealing the ideas of others, but that is rarely the case if you, t- if you take our premise. It is instead that the idea is in the grid of consciousness that connects us all. Intimately known by us if we are receptive all the time, anytime. Critical mass is reached and the new knowledge becomes part of the collective. If we accept that possibility, and there is much to suggest it is valid, then the hundredth monkey phenomenon tells us a great deal about change. For one thing, it tells us that change is inevitable. It tells us that it is the nature of change, of improvement to jump. It cannot be stopped because it is its nature to spread. For another, it recasts the whole notion of competition. Competitiveness becomes a time-bound event and not dependent on a superior set of skills or secret or proprietary information, survival of the fittest. In a world of knowledge grids, nothing is proprietary for very long. New ideas stay new only briefly. They have a short shelf life. What is innovative today can quickly become commonplace and routine tomorrow. This is true of the realm of human behavior. I mean, if you're old enough, how many people do you recollect running up and down the streets in their shorts 20 years ago, 30 years ago, before people began to do this? Hmm? The edges of all the envelopes just keep getting pushed back further and further. Superior performance no longer depends solely on who gets, gets there first. It depends on our ability to hold steady to a state of learning, which in turn depends on our deciding and our noting and our valuing freedom. And all of that ties up to life itself. Hmm? Please don't let the monkey connection offend you. She, Emo, made a connection, and a new nodal point was inserted into the special field, into the morphogenic field. Hmm? So the net thickens. The new thinking is going into our consciousness. I want you to think about these concepts, and I want you to be enlivened by them and encouraged by them and know that there are people all over the planet who are doing what you're doing now. And a great critical mass is on its way to being reached. Everything is good. Progress we are making. This is Gwendolyn. I got to (laughs) go. My technician is telling me. I'm signing off and I will see you the next time. I hope this has been useful to you. Thank you. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.